Hello and welcome to an At The Flicks interview. Now we are very pleased to have writer-director Phil Stubbs back for another of our director on director discussions. Hi Phil, how are you doing? Hello, good thanks. It's really good to have you back and today we're going to talk about Tim Burton. But before we get to that, can you give us the latest status on Last Chances as we're asked a lot about this? Well, I was about to say, actually, that the good thing now is you guys have all seen Last Chances. You had an exclusive preview, so it feels very legitimized now. I know you were all on set, so knew it existed. (laughs) As you know, because you've seen pretty polished but rough cut. So it's just finishing that, really. It would take a few more weeks, and then uh, it will be ready for some kind of public screenings, as in a national release. That won't be probably till next year because we have to arrange that with the distributor and everything. But uh, I'm hoping that the general public can see some kind of screening on a big screen by oh, Christmas. Cool. That would be really good because you know, you've recently put out an exclusive clip. Yeah. And I know some of our followers have retweeted and there's certainly been a lot of likes for that. That's so, cool. Um, yeah, no, it's good. I think everybody's looking forward to this. Excellent. And uh, for once, we're one up. We've already seen you it. Have. You have. One thing I will say about the cut of last chances we've seen is it blends a nice dark humour with some tense moments. And that's something the director we're discussing tonight also does very well, Mr Tim Burton. Before I give a brief biography of Tim Burton, Phil, why have you chosen him as the subject for our discussion? What do you admire about his work? I've just loved his work since the late 80s. And as we will get into the, you know, the first half of his career, I think is a remarkable Slater films. You know, at the time he was pretty unusual. His films had a different style, which hadn't really been seen in a big mainstream films, the darkness and the quirkiness and all that stuff, which is now famous for. But at the time it was fairly groundbreaking, but a great storyteller, a real artist, I think. You know, I don't think he's the most technical director in a sense, but he's just a true artist and has a vision and just splashes it all over the big screen. And when it works, it, it really works. As you say, when he came onto the scene, it was unusual. And Tim Burton himself has said that he's quite an unusual character. And when preparing for this, I did a little research into Mr. Burton. Here's what I found. So since childhood, Tim Burton has been making films such as The Legend of Dr. Agor when he was just 13. And he made that in and around his home. Painting, drawing, and watching movies were his passion. If it added rugby, that could have been Neil. And, <laughs> and Dr. Seuss and Roald Dahl were his inspirations. Now, his short film, Stork of the Celery Monster, which was his college film. A Great bit title. Diff- yeah, and a bit different to the one you made, Phil. <laughs> brought him to the attention of Disney. Now, that was in the early 1980s, which I think we'll all agree wasn't a great period for Disney. Nope. They and I say they, the board of directors, wanted to emulate Walt, but the world had moved on and they clearly hadn't. So Burton was allocated to the productions of such films as Fox and the Hound and The Black Cauldron, but his concept work for these films was never used. So instead, Disney had a bit of a loose end what to do with him, because they did have him under contract, let him make some rather striking short films. Vincent and a live-action Frankenweenie, which was released in 1985 as a support film with Baby Secret of the Lost Legend. Awful film, great Goldsmith score. Let's stop at that point. Phil, have you seen those shorts and what are your thoughts on them? Yeah, I saw Vincent on the big screen supporting A Nightmare Before Christmas. It was a real treat because I wasn't expecting anything else to be on the on the programme. And seeing this glorious black and white short, that's, if, for, for those who've seen it, it's just very witty and quirky. I, I sent some homework for the guys so they can all talk about Vincent. Yeah. It's absolutely hilarious. Yeah. Vincent Price talking about a kid who wants to be Vincent Price. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In rhyme. For those who haven't seen it, uh, I r- highly recommend it. It's, it's on uh, YouTube, isn't it's, it? It's on YouTube. Yeah. It's, it's a glorious, short, little animated film. There's some shots in it that, I swear you can see in his later films, in his big budget films, the quirky outsider silhouetted in a small doorway, casting a big shadow and things like that. There's a lot of imagery in it that he had later on. And Frankenweenie? Yeah, Frankenweenie is, uh, I could see what he's trying to do. I mean, I prefer Vincent by a long way, to be honest. I can see what, you know, it's obviously a Frank, a riff on Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein, but with a pet dog. 
and it did have his usual kind of outsider status and the society around them by the end of the film then joins in with the outsider as a piece of work i'm not as big a fan but i can see what he was doing with it i made the point it was released with baby uh, secret of the lost legend yeah. which is a disney yeah. dinosaur movie yeah and i think that's a fair comment william cat not one of his better movies but it just shows that disney had no idea what to do with this to tag it on the end of this which is a fairly routine adventure which might have been exciting a decade before but they'd completely lost the plot and then you had this frankenweenie which was just unusual with a cast of very like, unusual daniel stern shelley Duvall. yeah Somebody made the point earlier that there was the young girl next door. Was that you, Neil? Yeah. Who was young, that? Young Sophia Coppola. Is that really? Well. Yeah. <laughs> but again, <laughs> the Frank- people he managed to get. I mean, he's Disney, so it's it was Disney. Yeah, it was Disney so, I mean, that's yeah. what we were saying earlier. Is yeah. that um, unlike most directors' short films, you can see he's got. I mean, Vincent was uh, backed under Buena Vista, which is a Disney. Well, it was all Disney, and this is before. So, um, so he was in an unusual position because. Most first-time directors don't, you know, they have to do it from scratch with nothing. Yeah. And he had a good backing from a, a big company at the time. So fair play to him. Vincent is my favourite by far. They both hearken back to an earlier era Definitely. of horror movies, which we're going to come back to in a bit. Def. And they're both black and white. Yep. And the which, black and white thing. I which think is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Because as we were just saying, that would normally be a budget consideration, but I don't think it was. I think it was artistic choice. Oh, because, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. he had the backing to do it in colour and uh, obviously chose not to. I mean, Vincent is definitely more work of art in black and white because it's uh, you know, stop motion animation. And yeah, Frank and Weenie, black and white, like the classic old Frankenstein. Yeah, artistic choice. So I, I see it for Frank and Weenie. I see it less for Vincent because clearly Burton's influence on Vincent Price would be the Edgar Allan Poe films by Roger Corman, which are all colour, lurid oh, colour. Interesting, you're right. Yes, of so, course. So the, the fact he point. chose to make that in, in black and white, I, I find intriguing. Interesting, But it was good. He was a square peg in a round hole in yeah. Disney at that time. And ultimately, they let him go. But Frank and Weenie had made a big impression on Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens, of course, was big on TV at that time, playing Pee Wee yeah. Herman. Yeah. And he decided that Burton was the guy to direct Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Now, this is based... On the popular TV show, Pee-wee's Playhouse. The world Burton creates in that film is amazing. We've gone from black and white to very striking colour this time. Yes. My kids growing up loved it. What did you think of it? It's strange as a massive Tim Burton fan. I haven't really seen it that much because it's, you know, this kind of film it is never didn't really appeal to me. There's major Tim Burton elements all throughout it. That's without question, especially the uh, scary moment in the lorry. I think that gave some kids nightmares. You know, <laughs> Come on, yeah. But, um, it shows yeah. how twisted mine are then. Uh, <laughs> for me, I mean, I'm not, not to mean it's a bad I, film. I, no, I, and, and I think all. it's age as well, because you'd be a teenager. Though, exactly. I was, in my, yeah, I was in my late teens, you know, mid, uh, mid to late teens. So it, I wasn't really aware of it at the time, I suppose. So in my timeline of discovering Tim Burton, yeah. my first film was Beetlejuice, so... Yeah, so, and I think that's the same for most of us here. Yeah. Because Pee Wee Herman wasn't known in well, the American, UK. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. very American. Yeah. I only saw it on video. Yeah. Um, say so my kids then had it constantly on repeat. And this whole story of searching for the bike, adults yeah. playing children, yeah. with real children in there as well. It's it's a very strange setup. Gave him his first exposure to uh, feature films and it set a scene for a couple of things. So clearly after that break, Burton became loyal to his friends. He's always loyal yeah. with Paul Rubens. Now, Paul Rubens had obviously had a lot of scandals, yeah. of which he's been proven pretty much to be innocent of most of them, yeah. which is really good. And, of course, when we get to Edward Scissorhands, he started that relationship with Johnny Depp. So he created his own repertory company as he went. Do you think that repertory company works? Yeah, definitely. I mean, my favourite partnership is him and Michael Keaton, but we'll get to that. But yeah, him using the same actors again, it's its really cool to see and, and it does work. Yeah, absolutely. So with your films, when you get to your next film, would you like to cast a number of the same actors? Yeah, the reason, the reason I can see why directors do that because mm. you already have a working relationship. You already know what to expect yeah. and that is half the battle. So I can, I can really understand why directors keep using the same people because they're just making their lives way easier for themselves. Yeah, I imagine when you write your next script, Ellis will already be in mind for a part. For Ellis is already in it, but you know. 
Yeah, well, that, that goes without saying, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, back to Mr. Burton. Yes. Now let's talk about another friendship, Danny Elfman. What do you think Elfman brings to the films of Tim Burton's? And by the way, there's only three he hasn't scored. I'm going to guess, hang on a second. He did Mars Attacks, didn't he? He yeah. didn't do Edward. Right, because so, he had a big falling out after yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas. And he, mind, mind you, if you're talking about the later films, I haven't really kept track. Okay, so Sweeney Todd, because that was already a, a musical Son, by... Sondheim. Um, Sondheim, yeah. yeah. And Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, only because it got delayed and Elfman was committed to the sequel to Alice in Wonderland. Okay, well, the uh, amazing thing about Danny Elfman, who I'm a gigantic fan of, he wasn't a composer. He was in a band called Oingo Boingo. And if anyone has <laughs> wants to check them out, it's a very interesting band. They're quirky. So writing a big film score was pretty much a new thing for him. His music is, to me, is uh, spine-tingling, emotional. I saw him live with his orchestra in London a few years ago, and it was yeah. the most incredible things I've ever witnessed. I mean, when they played the Batman march, this whole orchestra, yeah. I was just, my hairs on my arms were just, you know. So, yeah, Danny Elfman's musical style and Tim Burton's visual style and storytelling just seemed like a perfect fit. Beetlejuice came out, and the theme tune to Beetlejuice is just this really bizarre... As is his theme music for Pee-wee. It's just bizarre. Yeah. And at the time, again, you have to remember, this is 1980, you know, 1988, 1987, whatever. Feature films are very commercial, you know, they were very mainstream, Outside of Burton, I would highly recommend the scores for Darkman and Nightbreed. After Pee-wee and a couple of TV shows, including a really good version of Ray Bradbury's The Jar, which he did for the revamped Alfred Hitchcock Presents, right. which you haven't seen as well with Dragon Down, he goes on to do Beetlejuice. Now, I think this is a pivotal film for you, Phil. Um, well, I saw it in 1988 on the big screen when I was 15 and it just blew me away would be an understatement. It was just, where did this come from? You've got three things at play here. Obviously, Tim Burton's the biggest part of it. You've got Danny Elfman's music, which, as we just said at the time, was, whoa, that's different. Yeah. And then you had Michael Keaton, who had just come off a few very generic films that didn't do very well including a film called The Squeeze, uh, including the one in the Japanese car factory. I can't remember. Gung Ho. Thank you. That one as well. So his career was starting to falter a little bit, but then he got cast as Beetlejuice and he, and I don't need to say it if you've seen it, he just... Owns it. He just... (laughs) Owns it completely, doesn't he? He doesn't chew the scene where he he makes it explode, but but (laughs) he does it with such style and charm. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a... Career reinvention from Keaton. The speed he's talking as well. Just, just incredible. Sort of outlining the rules. For, for years <laughs> in Universal Theme Park, they did a Beetlejuice review with uh, a actor coming on as Beetlejuice doing this whole song and dance number. You know, I've been to Florida a couple of times. I've always seen the show. It's gone now, unfortunately. But it was fantastic. Yeah. And I remember the audience, they were just laughing and laughing. I mean, you're watching that film for the first time and you're... You know, it's got scary moments, funny moments, bizarre moments, but the story ties together beautifully. Um, fantastic film. I think, I haven't seen it for a few years. I'm sure some of the special effects may look, but but it kind of suits it. The special effects mm. are meant to look a bit ropey, I think. It doesn't yeah. hurt it at all. But yeah. they're real on set effects. Exactly. That's quite good. And, and, and certainly one of the things for, for me with Beetlejuice, and I class it in with films like The Wizard of Oz and Time Bandits, when you're watching it, you have no idea where this is going. No, no, not at know, all. No, not at all. You know, when in the, the waiting room yeah. to go over to the other side. That is hilarious. Book of that? the Dead. A sandworms on Saturn. I mean, what on <laughs> earth is going on yeah. here? I mean, I think he, I think Burton had a bit of a fight with his studio executives about a few things. But as you can see, I think he was given quite a free reign. They wanted to call it Scared Sheetless. And he, <laughs> and he said, if you call it that, I'm jumping out of a window. <laughs> So, um, so the trio of Michael Keaton, Timber, and Jenny Elfman, and that insane story, and they, the story is so bizarre that it's impossible to make a sequel to. Mm. 
They did an animated series, though. They did, which is all right. But there's been rumours about sequels for decades. It's not going to happen because it's the time. I think the time's too past. too much now. It's past time. But yeah. the story is so bizarre. I don't think you can make a sequel to it. It's just it's one of those rare cases of the story is so unique. It's you, you can't really repeat it or add to it. It's just, but it's a fantastic film. I was blown away. Little did I know what was going to come next. We move on from there to the biggest film of Burton's career, which is Batman. Now, Tim Burton has gone on record and said he doesn't like superhero movies. Yet he's made two Batman films, almost got Superman Lives with Nicolas Cage made. Also among these many films are Mars Attacks and even Planet of the Apes feel like comic book in approach. Do you think Tim Burton's got his tongue firmly in his cheek here? Yes, I do. I think he's not an expert on comic books, but he, he loves the characters in them and wants to make his version of them, which I'm fine with, but a lot of some comic book purists may have some issues with, but I love uh, the first Batman. I saw that on the big screen in 1989 and I was just blown away because it was the first ever dark superhero film ever. I'm pretty sure on a big screen and uh, it didn't disappoint. I mean, the whole Batman thing was interesting because the 60s almost killed it and Graham's yeah. more on this than I am. Joe Dante for years wanted to make it. Yeah. Um, that fell away and then Burton came in with this darker material. And I remember, I mean, I was invited to a midnight press screening for it back in 89 in Plymouth. Since then, I've learned that press screenings are just a couple of you. This yeah. thing was out. It was full. Yeah. And it was just an amazing experience. It just blew you away the first time you watched it because you had all the hype with it as well. Yeah, there was a lot of hype. I mean, the hype for people who weren't around at the time, they can't imagine what the hype was no, like for Batman. For that summer. It was everywhere. You couldn't yeah. look. I've never seen anything like it since, yeah. to be honest. I've, I really haven't. And uh, But the hype and the print soundtrack to me, are the, you know, not the best things about it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you're being stuff. kind there. We do have to talk about, but we do have to talk about, which will never ever happen again, an actor like Michael Keaton getting cast as Batman. And and this is really good because I mean, if the internet had been around in those days, yep. it, it would have, have melted. Manic. It would it, have melted. The, the trolling on Michael Keaton. But the it was same bad thing. Enough. But what's interesting is, and I don't want to talk about this other film too much because we're talking about Tim Burton, but when The Dark Knight came out, Heath Ledger was announced and they'd be like, oh, he's going to be awful. Yeah. And as we know, that wasn't, that the opposite happened. It was incredible. But Michael Keaton being cast as Batman, that will never happen again because like Robert Pattinson's just been cast. You're never going to get an actor like Michael Keaton cast because he's too left of field. You're yeah. only, you're, that's never going to happen again. But it was a brave choice, very brave choice by the casting director and uh, Tim Burton. And the story is, and I love, I hope it's true, is that on the set of Beetlejuice, he had to wait so long to have that makeup put on him. He was starting to get really cheesed off and he was starting to get this glare in his eyes and just have this kind of intensity. And they, oh, and that, right. and they started to pick up on, there's, oh, there's another side to this guy. Is a real, <laughs> there, there is a real darkness to Keynes if you follow His it, yeah. performance is, is my favourite Batman interpretation ever because he doesn't just do like a comic book performance. He plays it with a, as a real tortured soul. You know, his Bruce Wayne is, yep. is is a bit strange. He's not this pretty playboy that a lot of nope. other films. He's his tortured soul. He's lonely. And when he's under the mask, he's just got that piercing glare and this presence. I mean, physically... A lot of people said he's wrong for the role physically, but it, they proved, it was the first time ever, they proved it actually that doesn't matter because yeah. in the 80s, up to that point, we had loads of Schwarzenegger and Stallone and I'm massive fans of them both, but they're, but you had to have big muscles to play any kind of yeah. uh, action role. And Keaton was one of the first times, as well as uh, Bruce Willis, maybe slightly less so, but... No, Bruce Willis and Die Hard. And Die Hard. The other one but yeah. well, but yeah. Michael Keaton as Batman was the first time it was like, that guy's a hero and he's not built like a brick toilet you know but but, but also the insanity and I'm, I'm thinking as you're saying all this that sequence where he's with kim bassinger and um jack nicholson turns up yeah. and he says you want to get crazy let's get crazy yeah and that moment you think this guy's barking man. yeah 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 and you you haven't seen it in terms of like it since this Not batman yeah. was he's unhinged yes like, he is uh, the fact that a man dresses up as a bat and goes around beating up people in gotham He's he's not playing with a Slightly full deck, unknown. and that's what Tim Burton has said in interviews. And and I think he's right. In film, you don't have to do exactly what the comic book says. What no. works, what works in a comic and a two D 
drawing is not always, as we know, does not always translate to the screen. So he made it a much more psychologically interesting character, which I personally prefer and I, I find way more interesting. And it's a bit mysterious. There's a lot that you don't know about this Bruce Wayne. And, and the sets, the the set building, they, the back lot they built, they built that Gotham City. Mm. And the, the production designer was told, just make it look like hell has erupted through the streets and kept going. Yeah. And it's incredible to look. And for 1989, when you saw that on the big screen, it, it was like, oh, no, it, it was, was like, amazing. wow, you're in this Gotham City. That was scary. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't look like an other, any other city. It looked, yeah. you know, like a scary place. I could go on about this, but everything about it, the, the costume at the time, you hadn't, you hadn't really seen a, a dark superhero costume like that ever before. And uh, at the time, it was pretty intimidating. It was, but yeah, Keaton's performance makes it... Jack. I mean, we don't need to talk about Jack Nicholson, but he's the reason it was it had a lot of success as well, of course. Well, that's where the money went. I mean... <laughs> that's where most of their budget went. And and also his percentage of the profits netted yeah. him around 70 million. Yeah, he so, made a fortune. Uh, but he was very, very supportive of Tim Burton because the producers... Uh, one so of the, would I be for seventy million? One of the producers, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. One of the producers, John, John Peters, Pe- John Peters, uh, who started off as Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. I'm going to say he had a re- reputation for being a nightmare, <laughs> yeah. and uh, he gave he gave Tim Burton a constant uh, hard time. I bet Jack Nicholson was very supportive. He kept saying, "Don't worry about it, kid. You're doing really well. Just do what you just do your thing." And he fought for Burton's vision to happen. And, and and he went back and worked for him on Mars Attacks as well. Yeah, exactly. So you got Burton's vision, partly because Nicholson fought for it as well. I think it's one of the, whether you love it as much as I do or not, I think most people have to agree it's one of the most important superhero for films For a superhero ever fan, it is incredibly Because at the time, it changed the history. Yep. You had the first ever dark film that was about a superhero. And Michael Keaton invented the Batman voice. Yeah. Because nobody had, nobody had heard no, how yeah. the dark, no. apart from, and actually it's a fair the part. last Batman they heard talk was Adam West. Yeah. Which yeah. as we know, was a completely different thing. Love Adam West, but it's a completely different style. Yeah. It's campy. So, yeah. So Michael Keaton invented, and they still use it to this day, the Batman, voice, the Batman yeah. voice and the whole uh, aura about it. Yeah. But I think one of the other things he looked at in the Batman films was duality, which yes. I think fascinated him. Absolutely. You, and Batman you, you, returns, they went into it even more. Yeah, exactly. You've got Selena Carl, Catwoman, the Joker before and after. Yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer's fantastic. Yeah, in, uh, this whole sort of duality. And, and particularly there's that moment where her mask is broken on yes, one side. Yeah. You've got her face masked yeah. on the other and she starts screaming. Her because- costume comes, as the film goes on, her costume becomes more and more ripped and yeah. more, more bits of her hair are sticking out. And it's, you're right, you're, you've nailed it. What I love about those films is the duality. And a lot of superhero films, I hate using that word almost, but... They don't really go into that. It's no. like, well, like you said, we've got a person who dresses up in this costume yeah. and goes around beating up people. That is not It's not normal. sane. It's not <laughs> sane. And the other thing of duality, it, it, the thing that got me was after reading Batman in the comics for so many years, you get to understand that the Joker is the crazy side of Bruce Wayne. Those two characters together work so well together because they're polar opposites of one another. And and that's explored a lot in the comic. And it was the first time I'd seen it on screen. Yeah. It was brilliant. Picked up more in The Dark Knight. Yes. Again, as we, we yeah. mentioned there. But but certainly there, I mean, this whole thing that they play in Batman was that the Joker killed Batman's parents. Yeah. yeah I mean, that that is that was a... I don't, to this day, I don't know why they threw that in there uh, because it wasn't really massively necessary, but I'm, I'm okay with it. A lot of people hate that plot twist. But yeah. Have you seen Joker yet? No. That comes back into it. There. Does it? The script occasionally in Batman, it occasionally goes a little bit wonky, but it, but it doesn't matter. The whole film as an experience and as a, it changed superhero films forever which is a fact, whether you like whether yeah. people like it or not, it definitely did. Yeah. And, and I think there was a huge, huge that. dip in super in superhero films between Supergirl. Supergirl yeah. was the one that killed, yeah. basically. Okay, well, what before that had been successful then? Superman. Just Superman. It wasn't uh, yeah. much else. Yeah, Superman, that, that was and it. A couple yeah. of TV movies. Yeah. But, uh, but Bill Mankiewicz, who, who wrote Superman, the movie, which is one of my favourite superhero films, but that's a whole other subject. I love Christopher Reeve's Superman. But anyway, but he did a script for Batman which I think is online somewhere, but it was actually very similar in tone to Superman. It was much more mainstream. Yes. Yeah. So that never happened, obviously. And, but I think what Tim Burton did doing this dark, yes. the dark, which people have been waiting for, because the comics have been doing it for years, yes. like you were yeah. saying. 
So when that happened, people just like, oh, finally, this right. is the and Batman fact, we've been And he's for. grounded and it yeah. seems realistic and, you know, he's a weird character. And it yeah. just went straight into the, the strangeness of the comics. So, so the interesting thing with this is Batman is this huge worldwide phenomenal successful film. Most successful film of its year. It was a no-brainer. He's going to come back for Batman Returns. Yep. Um, and they <laughs> give him carte blanche to do what they he wanted. They did. The interesting thing is they... They pulled Batman out of the cinemas. It was still doing really well, so they could so they could make money selling it on the video. And I think it sounds weird saying put it on video now, doesn't it? But yeah. they, they pulled it out of cinemas, put it on video, but it could have still played theaters. Apparently, for you know, it's just one of those phenomenons that could have gone on longer. But um, yeah, sorry, Batman Returns. You're right, uh, more way more of a Tim Burton film. It's not a kids film. No, oh, it's not. No, no, no. It's no, not. No. And that what that's what caused the problems because McDonald's had a tie-in. Some people assumed it was a kids film, and it definitely isn't. And no, I McDonald's and bought their toy range. There's disturbing moments in it. It's a very black, dark humor, satirical. You could say twisted. I love all that stuff personally, but a four-year-old is not going to love it. Over here, it was a 12. 12, um, yeah. And that was when 12 meant you oh, had course, to be 12 Of course, we forgot that in. Batman was the reason why 12 was invented exactly, in this country. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Um, we forgot but, to mention that. The other interesting thing about this is Max Schreck, Christopher Walken's character, yes. was based on Donald Trump. Oh, my word. And, I think you're right. Uh, yeah, no, no. I, I read an interview <laughs> on it. They said, yeah, because at that time, Trump was just New York. They thought we could do this and nobody would ever know who he was. And his character name was uh, Max Shrek, the actor from Nosferatu. Yeah. I love Christopher Walken in that movie. I think he's yeah. just he's scared. He's one of the he's reasons why it's, he's, he's one of the reasons why it's not. Scary yeah, but he's one of the reasons why it's not a kids film. No, because his delivery is so scary. Yeah, he's just the way he talks. And the whole having thing, a the, horny penguin as yeah, well. Yeah, the horny penguin, Very the leather horny, gear of Catwoman. A, a perverted penguin, uh, <laughs> her getting pushed through a window <laughs> yeah. to her death, yeah. so, so it seems. Um, and Neil's bit, favourite bit with the whip. Yeah. <laughs> but the best thing was for me, uh, Michael Keaton returning and giving just as good, if, if not a better performance as Bruce Wayne, Batman. The costume was way improved. If you compare the costumes to go super geeky for a moment, the first one's a little bit cruder, way cruder. But you look at the one in Batman Returns and the it's very art deco and it's just a stunning, at the time, I think probably one of the best costumes ever put on the screen yeah, yeah absolutely it, it looks stunning point, yes massive difference in how they filmed it because uh batman was outside on the in the back lot of uh pinewood and batman returns was inside a soundstage all of it in, in los angeles yeah. do you know where the penguins came from for that i do birdland hmm. which i, yeah, I still I, over. I still yeah. love that fact so they had to keep all the sets refrigerated. Michelle Pfeiffer in that film is incredible. I mean, what, you're talking 27 years ago? And her name is still mentioned as one of the best yeah. on-screen cat women. I mean, she's she, everyone is compared to her. Yeah. Like the new one, uh, I think Zoe Kravitz, is it? It's yeah. just been cast in the new one. She's going to be compared to Michelle Pfeiffer instantly. Yeah. So Tim Burton was very distinctive in the way he did his two Batman films. But Batman killed people indiscriminately. Yeah, yeah, which is against very much what you would call your comic law. And um, <laughs> how do you feel about that? Um, well, at the time, I was going, "Oh, well, this is the cinematic version. This is what they want to do." If you read the comics, you're a fan, and there's lots of rules and laws, and you know, and things that only comic book fans would get. And yes, him killing people was just. I thought, hang on, that's not true, Batman. But they're doing it for the film. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't have a big problem with it. And also, if I may chip in, if you look at the timeline, uh, late eighties, every actual film there was bodies uh, everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So it, yeah. If, if if Tim Burton made it now, it might be slightly different. But at the yeah. time, I bet the producers were like, "Yeah, oh, you kill the bad guys because that's what we do in yeah. Hollywood." Yeah. And if you look at you know what was going on then, um, RoboCop and things like that oh, was yeah. just like slaughter. Slaughter. That was <laughs> yes. I agree with Graham. I, I had exactly the same thing. Yeah. I thought, yes, in the comics, he's got a very strict code. Yes. This is the cinematic version that's going in a slightly different way. It didn't bother me. I didn't lose any sleep over it. No. Some people no. are niggled about it, but, which is fair enough. They're, they're, but I, it didn't bother me at all. I'm just trying to think of the deaths. There's only one death in it that was a bit... He casually killed it. If you look at Batman Returns at the very beginning with the... There's one casual the attack, kill. He, he just casually kills quite a lot of people, I think. Oh, yeah, he and he sets, he, oh, he... Yeah, sets fire sets to people. Sets fire to someone. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah. But still, anyway, I love the film. Michelle Pfeiffer and Michael Keaton used to be a couple, and some, not everyone knows that, and that is why... 
they're kind of exes as actors in the film and that ed- added to the tension oh, right. on set and because if you look at that film there is i think there's serious chemistry between those two leads which is uh which all adds to it and which Danny, do you prefer what which film yeah uh the two batman returns but i love them both but because Batman Returns is more the director's vision, because I think Batman he had a lot, he had producer pressure more to make it yeah. slightly more mainstream. Yeah. And then on the second one, he just went all out Tim Burton, which, yeah. uh, which to me, I'd, it made of the first one made a fortune. Of did. course, they're going to go right here. You go have all the toys. And the trouble is, and it still bothers me to this day because the second one made less, and sequels normally make less. It's just a fact. Mm. It's like a pretty common a sequel. A sequel never makes quite as much. Mm. And because of the complaints of some people, they stopped him making his third Batman film, which I would have loved to happen. But we got Batman Forever Is Dead, which I will not talk about because uh, yeah, he, he was keen to get out as well. He probably he probably was. I think I think you're right, Jeff. I don't I don't think he was dying to make a third no. one, but he was in line to make it. Yeah, yeah, but they yeah, stopped it. But I think you're right. I don't think I don't think it was his number one priority no, to make no, a third no. one because I think with Batman Returns, he'd made his statement about what he yeah. truly yeah. saw a Timber and Batman film would be like. And, and let's not forget, in between those two films, he made another film, a film that on paper you'd have thought would be an absolute disaster. Yep. It was his first film with Johnny Depp, although Tom Cruise is up for the role for a time. He We're was. talking about Edward Scissorhands. And Johnny Depp, the unknown actor at the time. Yeah. Mm. Well, what are your thoughts Gary on Oldman that Gary Oldman was up for it. Was uh, he? Yeah. Oh, and it becomes another collaboration. Yeah, I mean... When I saw the trailer back in 1990, uh, late 1990, I think, they must have churned that out pretty quick. I thought, oh, I'm not sure about this. But when I saw the film, I, I, I kind of really charmed by it. Mm. You I mean, Alan Arkin as the dad, for one. Yes. Yeah, brilliant characters, brilliant hmm. character actors. I mean, yes, it's a very grandiose, extremely melodramatic, extremely fairy tale story, but it's done with such charm. And Danny Elfman's music. And Danny just... Elfman's music. And Johnny Depp. As we'll talk about later, this was one of his best collaborations with Burton. The costume design, the sets, I really liked it. And it's not my favourite uh, Burton film, but I thought it was just a really charming, really nice film. I think it's interesting it goes back to the colour palette of something like Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It does, doesn't it? It goes kind of pastel colour, yeah. bright colours. And, and it works because it sets it apart from the real world. I love it because it's cinematic. It's a real cinematic It's a beautiful treat. film to look at. Yeah, to, and, it's, to, yeah, yeah and it's weird. It, it is a fairy tale, yeah. a dark, dark fairy yeah. tale, but it's charming and it, the pacing is great. Yeah. Cinematography is out of this world. Yeah. Colour palette, scene dressing. And, and unusual for a fairy tale film, it plays like a fairy tale book. In other words, yes. the ending is very bittersweet. Yeah, and the way it ends, and I think I think the way it starts, if I remember rightly, is kind of like a fairy, uh, like a start of a fairy tale. I yeah. think I can't remember. Yeah. I've seen it for a while. Really enjoyable film. I can't say much more about it. Really, I think it's. No. Uh, I think one of the things with this film, which we'll just pick up on, is his love of old horror movies. Oh, okay. oh we've yeah. spoken about Vincent and Frankenweenie, Batman with Max Schreck. He loves having these actors in his films. I mean, he had the repeated casting of Vincent Price, not only in Vincent, but obviously in Edward I think Vincent Price, didn't he shortly die afterwards? He did. Yeah, that was so, his last So I'm really, you know, I'm really happy for Tim Burton that he got to work with his hero yeah. properly on screen before that happened. But Michael Goff, who's um, oh, Michael Goff. A, a, a mainstay of... Um, I love you know, him as Alfred. He's my favourite Alfred, I've got to say, in all the Batman films. I mean, hmm. Michael Caine in, uh, you know, the Nolan ones, he's a bit of a tough geezer, but... Yeah, yeah. but yeah, but Michael Goff playing the old gentleman. He knew him from the old uh, horror films, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, things like Conga and yeah. and films like that. But also Horrors of the Black Museum is another one. Of yeah, but you're right. The the old horror film and, and he cast him in Sleepy Hollow. Yes, he did. Which was good. And another actor was in Sleepy Hollow who was with Burton for a lot, of, you know, for most of his life from this point. Christopher Lee. Yes, of course. I love that connection to the past, and it shows his love of old horror movies. Yeah. Does it work for you? Absolutely. I think like you say, he's proud of he's he he wants to kind of uh, honor those films yeah. in, in his films yes. for a new generation. Yeah. At the time, he's like you know most people at the time, including me, probably didn't know some of those references, but he he would he kept putting them in. Like this is what I love. He loves the old horror films. He loves the old monster movies, and he wants audiences to you know to be aware of it. I think it's great. And he brings it out in three films. I think particularly Sleepy Hollow, Sweeney Todd. 
and Dark Shadows, where he plays with all of those horror tropes. You know, he brings in Jonathan Freed from the TV series. He brings oh, yeah. him into Dark Shadows. I think Tim Burton could have made a really good horror film, you know, for adults, like a scary one, but, you know, he chose not to. But I think with his visuals and imagination, he could have probably done a really brilliant horror film if he wanted to at the time, at the time of, of his hot streak, if you like. I, I think that's a good point. Certainly an interesting point because... Those horror films, if you like the Universal films, yeah. the Edgar Allan Poe films, they were a big influence on him growing Massive. up. You can see certainly it. see that. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say, it would be difficult for him because to make one of those horror movies, he was so in love with it. How could you not romanticise it? And yeah. that in itself would work against trying to create one of those horror films. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you're probably right. But yeah, he he owned it in his own way, in his... Yeah. In his stories, like say Batman Returns, has got horror references in it. It's uh, yeah, we said about Max Shrek and the Penguin is. Uh, I is, mean, the Penguin is, again is one of the main reasons why it's not a kids' film because he is pretty scary. And Danny DeVito stayed in character on set as well. Quite interestingly, yeah, when he bites that guy's <laughs> nose off, yeah. yeah, yeah. And again, it just shows his influences, and it is interesting. And I'll come back to Last Chances. I mean. Films you saw when you were growing up, when you were working on the script for Last Chances, did that influence you? It did, but I don't know if it's the same for Tim Burton, but for me it was completely subconsciously. Yeah. I never thought, oh, that bit's a bit like that. But when you see the film, there's, I, I realise there's references, like I've said to you guys before, there's references to American Wealth in London. I wasn't even thinking about that. There's references to the first Batman film in Last Chances. There's like, I think I've said to you, there's two lines of dialogue I, I didn't realise actually straight out of Batman. So the which is pretty cool, but I didn't do that on purpose. <laughs> um, Let's stick with horror and, and, and go through it. So he was on such a, a streak at the moment and Disney yeah. wanted him back. Yeah. So he said, look, you can do whatever you want. You know, he went back to them and did A Nightmare Before Christmas and Disney, Nightmare Before Christmas had long been gestating yeah. with Tim Burton. You know, when he made it, Disney said, we want you, you can do whatever you want. So they got him back. And he essentially picked up from where he left off with things like Vincent yeah, and, I suppose and he did, and Weenie. The story goes that he'd made this film, showed it to Disney exec. They didn't have a clue what to do with it. So I can imagine. In Halloween 1993, they put it out thinking, okay, we'll see what oh, happens. Oh, yeah. And it's a massive hit. Yeah. And it runs to Christmas. Well, they'd not planned for it to go anywhere else in the world. Which is why that's how I know that ninety four, right? Christmas ninety four is when we had it. So I'm first in America in October ninety four. It's first time over there, and the the video for this was everywhere. It was just really bizarre to see this film that had been out there for twelve months, and it was still another two months before we were going to get to see it in the cinema. Yeah, you know, for all Disney's fear of this film, you know, you look at the merchandise of this. Oh, it's wow. one of their it's biggest merchandising yeah. Yeah. they've ever had. Yeah. I mean, what are your thoughts on the film? Well, it's interesting because, as we said, it's not directed by Tim Burton. But it's his concept, isn't it? I mean, Yeah, he, I mean, yeah, his, his concepts are obvious throughout, and, and there's some shots in it that look the same kind of imagery from Vincent. Like I said, lots of shadows and characters isolated, and loner characters isolated in the middle of some fairy yeah. tale kind of thing. Just typical Tim Burton imagery, but... And the characters were great, you know, Jack Skellington, which obviously to this day is still a favourite amongst many people. But, you know, but you know, the film is very much a musical, isn't it? And for me, musicals is not my favourite kind of genre, to be honest. So I appreciate it for what it was. I like the Tim Burton imagery, but I can't say it's one of my favourite films. It doesn't mean it's a bad film. It's just it's just not really for me, to be honest. But, you know, there's parts of it I liked, like when the kid picks up his Christmas present in a bag and pulls it out and has a head and shows his yeah. mum. Yeah. That's brilliant. That's the kind of thing I want to see in kids' films. I've never seen this film, Neil. Did it scare uh, you? What, The Nightmare Before Christmas? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Several times. Okay. So, I mean, I liked it, but it's just not, it's not really the kind of film for me. But yeah. But he had a lot of control because I'm sure something happened that caused a big fallout between him and Danny Elfman. So when you go into his next film, which was Ed Wood, yes. it's, you know, it's the only film... Elfman didn't score because they had this break in their friendship. And Ed Wood was, it was his first financial flop. It yes, didn't it was. make much, no, much money. No. I remember when I saw it in the cinema, I was the only person in there, and that wasn't even a press showing. But, you know, I think it might be, it might possibly be my favourite Tim Burton film. It's the best film about bad filmmaking. You know, I saw The Disaster Artist, you know, last year. And, oh, good grief. And it, it, there's similar stories, but Ed Wood does it so much better. 
in Edward, you really feel for the characters and you really want them to succeed. You've got this band of outcasts and you actually care about them and this, what happens to them. And again, uh, Johnny Depp is great in it. It's one of my, one of his best collaborations with Burton. It's funny. It's educational. You see how they made these cheap old movies with these. Yeah. Oh, where's the, the actor walks on set. He goes, where's the cockpit set? Oh, it's behind you. And I've just pulled up a curtain and got two chairs while he was stood there. And that's how they film the airplane scene in uh, Plan from Knife Matter Space. But you don't have to see or know about Plan Knife Matter Space to, to enjoy the film. Well, now, in um, this year's Sleepy Hollow First International Fantasy Film Festival, one of the events was on stage reading with a group of actors of the script of Plan 9. Plan 9 Space. Space. Oh, cool. I imagine that must have been fantastic. Oh, brilliant. But yeah, you, you really empathise with the characters. Well, I do anyway. And, uh, and this was years before I thought I wanted to be a filmmaker, properly. Martin, Martin Landau, Landau won the Oscar. Won Oscar quite yeah. rightly. His character is... The friendship between him and Edward is really touching and yeah. affecting and genuine. And Although it's interesting, if you ever read Stephen King's book, Dance Macabre, which talks about the history of horror... He really lays into Edward Jr. for his exploitation of Bella Lugosi. Well, yeah, there is definitely an, an element of that. And in real life, you know, the, I'm, I'm sure Edward wasn't quite the, you know, the sweetest person that the film portrays him as, but it's a cinematic version. Yeah. No, I know I love Edward. I think it's, I think it's one of the best films about filmmaking and I'm including once upon a time in Hollywood, which I loved, but I think Edward is uh, is right up there. I think it's just as good. Mm. I mean, but yeah, you're right. It was an absolute flop. I mean, you're black and white. Was it 94, 95? Black and white film, and it just did not. I think it's the first time audiences just didn't. They weren't that interested in what Tim Burton for the first time was was showing them. Well, he, he pushed boundaries, you know, with with Pee Wee Herman taking that character in. Beetlejuice is off the wall. <laughs> terribly. I mean, um, not terribly. Fantastically. Yeah. yeah. The, <laughs> the Batman films, I'll excuse those, but Ed, Edward Scissorhands is just, you look at that concept on paper, you wouldn't go with no, it. No way. And all of this, a nightmare before Christmas, yeah. and then suddenly you come to this, and it's just full stop. Yeah. It just doesn't work for him. No. And I think that is a marker, because I think since that film, I don't know what happened, but Burton's made generally much more commercial fare I don't think anything made since that point matches what went before. I actually hadn't thought about where that line there is drawn, and I think you're right, actually. I think maybe that uh, flop just changed his yeah his sensibilities because he realised they're not going to keep giving me $100 million to do what I want if I give something nobody goes to see. I don't know. But yeah, I think you're right. That's an interesting line there. Critically, Edward was received incredibly well. I mean, yes, that's not much. I think it was. It, it was. And it certainly oh, is it now. Won Oscar, so. And it certainly is now as well. I mean, yeah. But, you know, from that, he goes to a big budget science fiction comedy. Yep. Which uh, I thought, so we're talking about Mars Attacks. Yeah. I was hoping in 96, I was hoping was going to be a huge return to massive mm. form. I was hoping. Yeah, same here. I went to that cinema, I was like, oh, you know, we've got Tim Burton back with yeah. this big, bizarre... And I'll just cut to the chase and say I came out of it a bit underwhelmed. I mean, there's loads going on in that film, but the tone is all over the place because normally he was pretty good at... Spot on, wasn't he? Lasers. He was pretty good at naming a tone and going, okay, it's going to get weird, but this is what we're going for. But I guess it goes to the script. But you take a film like Beetlejuice, which has, which again, you could say tonally it's all over the shop, but it The story is crazy. The reason it works because you got grounded by Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin, because their characters are Mr. and Mrs. Normal, and they take you through this they world. They do. There's nobody in Mars Attacks There's that nobody. takes you through that world. That's, a, that's an excellent question for uh, filmmakers or film students. Who is the protagonist in Mars Attacks? Mm. That's an excellent question, because I can't answer it. It's not Jack Nicholson. It's not the uh, Army Boys. No. Martin Short or any Jack Jack Black. It's not Pierce Brosnan. Brosnan. No. no. So all you have is a series of cameos, and yeah. I think that's partly why the that's film. the problem. The film it, feels it, so it, choppy. Yeah, yeah. And and the pacing's off, and, and there's no character you like. No. no. And when you know characters get their heads sewn onto dogs and things, I don't know. It just doesn't seem to have any impact at all because you don't care about the characters. You don't really, um, you know, special effects wise, fantastic. I, I love the I love the aliens. Yeah. But without a good story. I mean, what, what were they based on? Wasn't it based on trading cards? Those kind of uh, like yeah. bubblegum yeah. Yeah. packets in America. I don't think we got them. No, we did. Yeah, we, we did. did. Okay. Yeah, back in the 60s. Okay, yeah. cool. But um, for the first time, you had some 
craziness, but you didn't have a story that hooked you with characters that hooked you. And uh, and to this day, I, I, I'm not a fan of that film. It's not terrible. It's watchable for me, but it's but it's not it's not a good film. So let's look at two films from that point. One I think is underrated, and the other which I think we'd all consider a low point. But let's take the high point first and and your views on this. Big Fish. I mean, Big Fish, in my opinion, after Mars Attacks was considered an an actual proper comeback of sorts for him. It still didn't reach the heights to me of, you know, his highest points, but it was a little bit, okay, now he's back to a proper story. And and it's very personal because it's about his relationship with his father. Yeah, and it was a good story, good characters, good cast. And so it was much more back on track. Okay, now this is a proper film. Yeah, and a lot of people liked it. I yeah, liked it. I, I, re- liked I really it. liked it. I liked it. it a lot. Like I say, Mars, Mars Attacks, I consider pretty much unwatchable, to be honest. But Big Fish, yeah. that's a good film you can watch. Yeah. It's got a good story. And I think a lot of people have the same view that Big Fish was a pretty much a good return to form. Yeah. So let's take the low point, Planet of the Apes. Oh, uh, but you're, you're, are you skipping Sleepy Hollow? I've skipped Sleepy Hollow. Okay. Yeah. All right, let's yeah. go straight to the low point. Planet of the Apes is an abomination. When I first heard about it, I thought it was a bit strange he's doing it, but okay. I mean, I'm a massive fan, like a lot of people mm. of the original classic with Charlton Heston. Yeah. Why mess with that? I don't know. I mean, of course, years later, we got the actually pretty good trilogy. with The them, trilogy. Yeah, which yeah. is really good. But that was years in the future, so yeah, we, yeah. we can't go there yet. You know, I saw the first trailer and the practical makeup effects are still incredible. They are remarkable, but... The minute I saw it again, the script, the story, just like you say, I think it's just, I think it's probably his lowest point ever. That film, and and yet the irony is his bizarre twist ending to that film is more <laughs> yes. in keeping with Pierre Boulet's original novel. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. anything <laughs> in the series, yeah, in, in any of the yeah, Planet yeah. of the Apes series. I just didn't like the cast in it. I didn't like the story. I didn't like. Yeah, Roth never even read the script. He just wanted to work with Burton. Yeah, that to me is another line drawn in his career from Planet of the Apes onwards, it was like, yes. Uh, then from that point on, I felt like I couldn't just trust yeah. him. And and that's interesting because this is what bringing me full circle now, because I don't think we need to go through each, no, each I don't of think his films. So. In the 1980s, he didn't fit in with Disney. No. But I think now he does. With his films of Alice in Wonderland and Dumbo, they're exactly what they would have turned out in the 80s if they could have got away with it. He has become... <laughs> The establishment. That's yeah. interesting. That's the films they would have wanted in the eighties. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and for that reason, probably I'm not a big fan of. Uh, I haven't even seen Dumbo. I've got to be honest. But uh, Alice in Wonderland was the only reason Alice in Wonderland did very, very, very well was because its 3D trailer was before Avatar. That's my theory. Okay. Because everybody was going whatever you think of Avatar as a film at the time of the cinema, everyone was going wow. And yep. word spread like wildfire. And right before it, you had a gorgeous 3D trailer of Alice in Wonderland. That's my theory. And then yeah. you see the actual film and it's, uh, well, it's not even worth talking about, really. I don't think it's... No, uh, it's not it's Alice in Wonderland. So certainly I think Which where we come into... It is kind of Alice in Wonderland. I, I, I like really. that analogy, Jeff, that you just made. That you know, he is—he has become the thing that he despised. Yeah. You know, when mm. he was doing things like the Nightmare Before Christmas, and he was doing the concept stuff for that, he was—you know—Disney execs were going, "What, what the, the hell is are we, we going to do with this?" Yeah. And now he's doing exactly what they want, which is, yeah. "Oh, look, we can make you know a shed load and, of and cash yeah, out oddly, of this." Dumbo is the only one of the the rebounds. remake that's flopped yeah it didn't do that great did it and, it, and uh, you know it, it did I didn't bother to see it because I, I had a feeling I wasn't going to like it so, you know but uh, it did reunite Michael Keaton and Danny DeVito and Tim Burton but that's about the only good thing I could probably think of that would yeah. make me even want to see it if you were advising Tim Burton now what would you say to him to do Tim for your next film you need to do such and such the trouble is it's like with Peter Jackson at this point Peter Jackson can't go back to being Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson. No, but but I think, I mean, as we discussed with Peter Jackson, I don't think he's enamoured with the whole world. No, he's not. Making. He's kind of retired. I think Burton still is. Oh, he still is, yeah. I would just say, I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing that his personal taste has changed as well. Yeah. So I don't think he's got the same taste oh, that he had. that's interesting. I don't think he's got the same taste that he had in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, I don't think he wants to do a Beetlejuice type thing now. That's just my theory. I don't know the guy. You think he'd be more comfortable with a big corporate production? I mean, it'd be nice if he did a low-budget 
crazy Tim Burton film, so he didn't have to worry about pleasing the corporate shareholders for a change now. But whether he'd want to do that, I don't know. But it would be nice to see if he had one more pure Tim Burton crazy. Yeah. That would be nice. But having said that, um, even though it was a kind of mainstream film, I quite like Big Eyes. If it's not, wasn't that well seen, but it's actually quite a decent film. It's an interesting film. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Honestly, that's worth a watch. It's worth a watch. I'm just trying to think. So Planet of the Apes, what was after that? That was... So Planet of the Apes, you had things like um, then Sweet, Dark Shadows, Sweeney, Sweeney Todd. Todd. I haven't seen Alice in Wonderland. Wonderland. Yeah, yeah. Sweeney Todd was good. It's Sweeney Todd I liked. I, I must admit, I did. Uh, well, I can it's understand the stage play, Helen, really. Helena Bonham Carter was coming from when she said, you know, in a recent interview I saw her and she said it was her favourite film. I do think, uh, I think the musical really works. I think Depp is excellent in that film. Sasha Baron Cohen is good. The whole thing of, of that works, but it is an established film. Yeah. It's an yeah. established production. Oh, that reminds me, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That was another one. Uh, I don't like Depp in that one. Well, he played Michael Jackson. Exactly. Well, but whatever he did, I didn't like it. <laughs> the not quirkiness that. of the Gene Wilder version from 71 is, is not there. And I think no. it's it needs too glossy. Yeah. yeah, it needs you know, that. And when you think that one of his influences is Roald Dahl, yeah. I think he missed the point there. Yeah. You know, when somebody like Wes Anderson can make something oh, like Fantastic Mr. Fox. That's an excellent compar- yeah. That's yeah. an excellent point there. Yes. Yeah. You're absolutely right. That's more the style you want for yes. Roald Dahl, not, yeah. no, not no, uh, no. a gigantic Michael Jackson bizarre thing. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. We end this on a bit of a downer, but hopefully <laughs> you will turn this Sorry, around. Every time I talk about a director, we end on a downer. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about another director. We'll have to do another one very yeah, soon. We'll have pleasure. to decide on a director. But that was really good. I learned a fair bit going through that. So thank you very much indeed. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. 